Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... At 15, I'm drinking almost a full bottle a day, and my friends are begging him not to buy me alcohol anymore. But then I get, you know, that hole is still there, and I get this great idea. This idea comes to me that I need a baby. And if I just have a baby, that will fill this, this hole that I have. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt. You know, uh, just this Sunday, Dr. Matt, we celebrated Father's Day. Yes, that's true. And uh, my kids were wondering, what should we get dad for Father's Day? Does he need a golf shirt? Does he need a tie? And I was like, I don't need a tie. I don't plan on going to court anytime soon. Paddleboard? Uh, no paddleboard. My ex-wife got that in the divorce. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, which I think she sold right after that. But that's okay. We're not here to We're talk, not here about, to talk that. about that. No. But I said, you know what? I don't really need anything. Because the fact that you guys gave me a second shot means the world to me. And, and in all honesty, that's what I wanted to do. My whole life, I just wanted to be the best parent I could be. And there was times that I was the worst parent I could be. And, and it's because there was a lot of reasons why. But the honest answer is I wasn't sure what I was doing. You know, I was, I was talking to our guest. We're going to introduce her in just a second. But I think one of the biggest lies we tell our children is that we know everything. You know, they look yeah. to us like yeah. we, we have. Well, they kind of assume it. I mean, we don't have to tell them that. They, when you're a kid, you think your parents know everything. And then if we don't you know, correct them, they might believe it. But I remember being a kid, and, and even now that I'm, you know, I'm 47 years old. When I was a kid and my parents were 47, I was like, man, they've got it all figured out. And they know and they're old. And they're old. And, and, and life seems to be so easy for them. Right. And now I'm 47, I'm going, I still don't have it figured out. And there's still days I'm trying to figure out which way is up. And the thing is, is that we don't know. We know what we know. But we're learning just like you are. Well, do you know why we think that way? It's because people are prone to outcome-oriented thinking. Okay, talk to me about that. Okay. Outcome-oriented thinking is we think that when the outcome that we're working towards happens, then we'll be happy or then you know life will feel good or then I can relax. And to some degree, I mean, you have to set goals and work towards outcomes. But if you're always focused on the outcome, you're always kind of waiting to be happy. Mm. Process-oriented thinking, you're still setting an out a goal because there's a process to get to the goal, but you're focusing on the process. You're like, I, I'm going to enjoy 
all the steps along the way until I get to whatever the outcome is. And if you think globally and in big terms, that's life. You know, the outcome is death. Mm -hmm. So you might as well enjoy the process. But even something like raising your kids, right? Like, I guess technically that job's never done. But if you think about raising them until they're independent, it's like, would we wait until they're independent to enjoy our kids (laughs) to see how they turned out? Or can we enjoy them all the steps along the way? And so I think that's a good lesson for all of us is to try to push ourselves to be process-oriented thinkers because then we're still working towards our goals, but we're enjoying and focusing on the steps along the way. You know, and I think that goes back to, uh, you know, summer's here. A lot of people are taking road trips. Uh-huh. And uh, the, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. That's another way to say it. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and enjoy the journey. Mm-hmm. I remember when my oldest was uh, first born, my mother-in-law, she goes, I go, I'm not sure what to do. And she goes, just love every moment. Mm-hmm. Because that's before you know it, then it's going to change, and so you got to make sure that you're present. I think you're 100 percent right. If we're just fixated on that 18 when they're out, mm-hmm. and then wanting to love them, uh, yeah, we've missed a lot along the way, right? And I think we do it to ourselves too, as parents, where we think, well, when I get good at doing this, then I'll feel good about my parenting. And I think you just, if you are focused on the love and the relationship then you can make mistakes as a parent, still love yourself, and the kids still love and appreciate you too. So. Are you ready for your mind to be blown? Yes. Let's turn that and apply that to recovery. Okay. There's so many people who think that the uh, recovery is just about not using substance or drugs. Right. And they go, once I'm done that, then I'm, I'm healed or it's over. And that's not what it's about because people relapse. Uh, life happens and, and you're thrown these curveballs and it's going to test you. It's going to test your tools in your belt to see if you can stay sober. But it's not about that. The, it's a journey. Well, and I would even with with recovery, I guess one thing uh, to also realize is if you're waiting until some date in the future to feel good about yourself as as a sober individual, you're missing out also on the learning at each step, right? So you can look at a relapse as a failure or you can look at it as an opportunity to learn. What what did I not get that I needed or what did I do that I shouldn't have done or what did I not do that I should have done? Like those sorts of things are learning experiences all along the way and you can forgive yourself and grow and feel good all along the way until eventually you're maintaining a sobriety that feels like the life you want it to be instead of getting to that point and realizing, well, why aren't I happy now? Yeah. In recovery, a lot of people will will tell you right from the top of their head, their sobriety birthday, mine is September 3rd. Mm -hmm. Coming up, that'll be three years. And I think it's very important in the beginning because those are those small goals that you can attain. And I remember the first time I set the year, uh, you know, my goal to be sober for a year. I was like, I, that, 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 I was like, I got to do a year. I just want to see what a year's like. And I got the year and I was like, wow, that was pretty good. And I learned a lot, but I was still kind of raw and still trying to figure things out. And then I was like, people were like, well, now you got your first year. What are you going to do? I was like, I guess I'm going to go for another one. Let's mm-hmm. see how that goes. Right. And so I reached two years and I have learned so much in the past two and a half years. I can't even begin to tell you what I've learned, not only about myself, but my family and the way the world works. I haven't got it figured out by any means, but every day I'm learning and every day I'm thankful for another sober day and, and another trip around the sun. Well, you know, as you're talking about that, it's kind of interesting. I'm thinking, I actually, I guess I don't hear you talk about the date very often, if ever. I, I do hear you talk a lot about what you're doing. And so that's the process. Mm -hmm. Um, And you do talk a lot about like what you're doing to stay sober and, 
you know, the exercising and, and the different things that you do. I, I think that's cool. So, yeah. And so, and that's what it's about to me. I mean, I, I, I'm not fixated on that date. And, and, and this is going to make people mad. Uh, people go, so you're done drinking forever. I don't know that. And, and, and because well, I, what does that mean to you? Because you're right. That rubs people the wrong way. So, because they, so to you, what does that mean when you say that? Because you say that all the time. Because here's the deal. If I say never, my no, I know the way my brain works. And it will get fixated on that never part again. And, and, and that will become like the, what is that? The, the Raven's heart, Edgar Allan Poe. The telltale heart. Yeah. The boom, boom, yep. boom, boom. Yep. All of us, if, if I The do, Raven was a separate poem, but okay. yeah, I gotcha. That but if nice I do combo. that, then that's all my head hears is the boom, 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 boom. Right. And it starts to get louder yeah. and it starts to get louder. Well, you becoming, you create a conflict that doesn't have to be there. So you get, you get in conflict with that word never. I never, and, and those, those of us who have a little bit of oppositional nature to us still, even though we're old, we don't like to be told never, right? Yeah. Even if it's ourselves telling ourselves never. A lot of people, when I say that, what they hear is that I'm leaving the back door open. Trust me when I tell you that back door is closed. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that that's what I'm going to do. So do you think this is like a mind trick you're doing with yourself? Or I is, really do. Or is, yeah? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a Jedi mind trick. These are not the droids you're looking for. Okay. You know, and, 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 it, and it just helps the nonsense between my ears make sense. Yeah. And I, I can't get fixated on that never part. I need to be fixated on what's right now and keep moving forward. Uh-huh. And this allows me to free up that space and that energy in my mind to continue doing what I'm doing to today. in the present. And we've talked a lot on this show about how uh, 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 hyper-focus on the future creates a sense of, of being out of control in the present because the, the, the future is uncertain. Mm-hmm. And so if you're always talking about this never, 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 that's a future thing. And in the present, you can't relax and be part of your process. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And they taught us in recovery. That's called future tripping. The reality is, is that I can't predict the future. I love that you and I talk about the same thing, but we use very, very different terms. I know. Yeah. But I, future I can't, tripping. I like it. That's yeah, cool. future tripping. I can't predict the future and I can't change the past. The only thing I can do is live in the moment right now and be present. Right. And so that's what I can – those are the things that I control and affect right now. And that's the only power that I have right now is to be able to control and affect what's going on right now, right at this moment. And they say in recovery, if you've got one foot in the future, one foot in the past, you're pissing on the present. Again, we talk about things differently, but we mean the same stuff, right? But it makes sense. Yeah, right. You know, and so I would rather focus on the present right now and yeah. take control that's, of that. That's mindfulness, right? Being focused in the present. If you learn from the past and you're aware of the future, but you act in the present, this is the only time you ever get anything done is right now. And that's what we're doing with this podcast. So we want to thank you for stopping by today and listen to this. We've got a great guest. Her name is Tara Lieben. Uh, she reached out a while ago. Uh, so fact, so far in fact that she didn't remember why she reached out. And I said, Hey, would you like to come on? And she was like, yeah, I think I would. She's got a great story. <laughs> Sometimes Her, we're slow to get back to people. A little bit. Well, yeah. And then that's my fault. I'll blame you. Sure. Well, I'll take it. It's accountable. 100% honest. <laughs> it's my fault. It's ours. We can share it. Yeah, but she'll be our guest today. Thank you for listening to Project Recovery. It is a KSL podcast. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I am Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Tara Lieben. Uh, she reached out a while ago. Do you remember how long ago it was that you reached out? Uh, maybe January. I think it was January. And what made you reach out originally? Because in the, in the text you sent, you said, I'd like to share my story. I've shared it a couple of times, and people said, you know what? You should really reach out to uh, Project Recovery and share your story. Everything that I went through had to be for a purpose. And if that's to help somebody else who is that low, right, and and maybe just give them that hope that no matter where you are, you can definitely recover and you can be happy. Uh, and I want to stop you before we get into your story because I hear people say this all the time, Dr. Matt. Everything that I have gone through had to be for a purpose. And, and I think that's a positive way to talk about the stuff that we put ourselves through. Mm-hmm. But – is it necessary? I mean, because I mean, I would because here's the thing. I would like to go back and have a different life. I mean, if I could, I would, but I can't. So right. I've got to make the best out of what I've been given and the cards that have been dealt to me. And unfortunately, I dealt some of these cards to myself. But the thing is, is I want to make my mess my message. Yeah, I think you can make you can make it purposeful. Not everybody does. And so I like the I like the the mental state that comes from saying Every, you know, I've gone through all this for a purpose because hopefully what that person is meaning is that I'm, I'm making a positive purpose out of this. But I agree with you. Most people would like to go back and not suffer in the ways that their addiction has created the suffering in their lives and their families' lives. Um, and we unfortunately see some people that, uh, they may even get sober, but they don't, they feel resentful about the experience instead of accepting and finding purpose in it. So I, I think everything, all, all tragedies have potential purpose, uh-huh. if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. But you have to make it happen, and that's, that's my opinion. You know, the thing is, is, for me, because of what I've gone through, and some of it, most of it was self-inflicted, I think there's been some great things that been came out of it, and it's the one that I'm more empathetic I'm more loving, I'm more understanding, and, and, and those are things that I learned because of where I was and more, where I, I am. I think you're, you're um, more genuinely open, and I think people hear me say that, they may not, they were like, well, Casey's always well, and it's like, well, but you weren't always open about your stuff, no. right? Like, you're, you're Mr. Gregarious, Mr. Outgoing, life of the party, er, you know, everybody feels like they're your friend, but you'd go home and never having shared your real experience, you felt lonely. And so I think that's one thing I've noticed that you've changed in over time is that like you're more a more authentic person. You're more open because, well, you had to be, I guess. Well, yeah. you didn't have to be. No. I mean, you, you know, you could have you could have uh, hidden after after the public stuff that happened, but you but, didn't. But making the mess my message. So, Tara, you wanted to share your reason for being here today, and that is because 
you've learned some things. So before we get to that, let's find out the story of Tara. Where does it begin? All right. Um, so I was I was raised and my childhood was in West Valley. Um, um, West Magna, Valley, Utah. The West Valley, Utah, Magna mm-hmm. Border. Um, For the listeners, that's that's uh, on the way way heading west. Like if you were to head to Wendover, Nevada, it's west of Salt Lake City. Think, yeah. So we, I mean, I didn't, as a kid, I didn't know. I mean, we were pretty poor. I didn't know that we were poor because life was, you know, great. Um, I am the oldest of three kids. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, my mom and dad were very hard workers. They weren't, they weren't home a lot. So I was home alone a lot. Um, and as a kid, I was the let me do it kid. Like, I don't need anybody. I want to grow up really fast. Don't tell me what to do <laughs> kind of thing going on. You like on. to do things for yourself. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, but I had a very, very vivid imagination that I lived in very, very early on and almost exclusively. <laughs> so You like escape into your imaginary mm-hmm. world? Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Wow. Absolutely. And very grandiose imagination. Like one day I'm going to save the world and stop wars. And, <laughs> and if mm-hmm. everybody would just... If everybody would just love each other, the world would be such a better place, you know, and this is where I lived. And um, so my parents were gone a lot and it it put a lot of responsibility on me for my younger brother and sister. I was an 80s kid, so it was come home by yourself with your key under your shirt kind of thing. Latchkey kid. Latchkey kid, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I, would, I would walk down 3500 South, unlock the door, kindergarten, you know. And, and this whole time, what I know now that I didn't know then, I was a very nervous kid, full of anxiety. Um, and I wanted to display. I don't think I displayed very nervous because I would, I would always – my dad used to call me, you're blunt with no tact because <laughs> okay. I would say exactly what was on my mind. But I, I was very uh, nervous, especially with my siblings, and tried to – to very finicky and control everything they were doing, make sure my sister's hair was perfect, and you know, because I'd get them ready for school. So there's, there's a term I think that you're going for here called parentified. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that term before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where it's often the it's often the oldest, and one parents uh, necessarily do need to be off to work. Sometimes a lot of that parenting responsibility of the younger siblings falls on the oldest. And even if you like to do things yourself, unfortunately, what can happen is you kind of miss some of your own childhood, that latitude to be a goofy kid who isn't feeling responsible all the time. And and it sounds like you're saying that's sort of what was happening for you. Right. And whether it's real or perceived, that's how I perceived it. Well, then <laughs> so it's real because that, yeah, that right? was, it was real yeah, in perception my is reality. So, so um so as I got older, um, I, I did have a couple really good friends, but I noticed I was different. We weren't raised in the predominant religion here, and um, it didn't really cause issues for me until until it did. <laughs> and I I felt very excluded. And, and in fact, I went into uh, this kid thing they were doing. I'm not even sure all the terms they used. And they had told me I'm not part of this religion, so I can't be there. And And so that first initial absolute rejection what's wrong with me because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i'm not like all these other people and i already felt a little different anyway so mm. um when i was eight um is i don't know what happened i just started feeling i didn't want to live already and having suicidal thoughts at the age of eight actually i attempted oh. so 
so I had this school play I skipped out on because my parents weren't going to come anyway. Right. This is my thinking that my dad did actually show up to this one and I wasn't mm. there. But um, I went home. I got a bottle of Tums, that big jumble bottle, sat in my closet and ate them all waiting to die. Thank God I didn't know that Tums wouldn't kill me. <laughs> now I'm very yes, grateful now. Yes. But I sat there and then and then. But what a sad little person you must have felt like at that time, you know, that, that you would go to that extreme. And, and it's not that kids don't feel anxiety and don't feel depression. They certainly do. But to take it to that level, you must have been feeling like that for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, I was, and and piecing back together, I had had a a sexual um, abuse situation at when I was six, and before that, I just remember, you know, it, it was something that had happened to me and my sister, and it was one time, and the mom came in and caught it happening with these older teenage boys, and then she beat me with a spoon. The mom beat you, <laughs> yeah, and put me in a corner all day. So I was deathly afraid to say anything to my parents. Oh my goodness. Deathly afraid. But I the next day I this anger and this rage just completely took over. And and I was angry moving forward and and the next day I actually I had thrown this rocket at, at this kid's little brother and cause, and then my anger was what ruled me all the way. Did you ever tell anybody about what happened? I did later when when I entered treatment as a teenager. Um but but you kept that to yourself all those years. Right. And, and the biggest thing that affected me was was not that it happened to me because I had disassociated so far from how I was feeling. But I was I was upset that I couldn't protect my sister. Sure. So, you know, as it progresses, I mean, it makes sense of why at eight, you know, right. this is an awful life. Nobody loves each other. I want out. Mm. <laughs> So, and then that seems anger. like a lot for anyone to carry, let alone an eight-year-old girl. And you said that from that point on, anger kind of ran your life for you. Mm-hmm. And was that more of a self-defense mechanism from that point on? You, I mean, I don't know if that's a thing. Is If I'm angry, then people know that I'm not to be messed with. Right. And I think it's a combination. My parents are both children of alcoholics. And and so even though they don't they – don't, have addiction issues themselves they definitely have a lot of traits and characteristics of alcoholics right we weren't it wasn't like we sat down and talked about how we felt it and, and you know it was very isolated very lonely my parents are very depressed and and i didn't know that but but you know it just i didn't feel loved i didn't feel like i could be myself so there's a lot going on and and i and never that's common for just so you know children who who grow up in an alcoholic home who don't drink themselves often become uh, kind of withdrawn. They don't talk about their feelings, uh, rigid uh, mm-hmm. attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. Um, and that's tough to be raised by one of those folks because you want to be close to them, and they they probably want to be close to you too. They love you, I'm sure, but they don't know how because of how they were raised. Yeah. So at eight years old, you find yourself in your closet eating a bottle of Tums. Do your parents come home and see what you've done, or how does this all come to light? Or is, do they still know? Do they know about this? I I don't actually think I ever told them that. No, no, because I I hit it. You know, I heard my dad coming home. I hit it, and I was in trouble for not showing up to the to the play. But there's no way because you know I'm just basing everything. I'm just going to get in trouble, and that fear of getting in trouble. So I didn't I didn't say anything. I know I think my parents suspected because I remember a day that I just laid in my bed crying all day and wouldn't tell my parents. They tried to figure out what was going on, but I just wouldn't 
I want to say anything. So, I mean, I, I think they knew early on that, that I was going to have a lot of issues to come. But, you know, I I love my parents a lot. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just feel my parents did the best that they could do. And, and I don't ever believe that one moment my parents ever woke up and said, gee, how can I screw Tara up today? You know, <laughs> like I, I do course, not hold that yeah. belief. Yeah. But, you know, through addiction, we, we believe all sorts of crazy things. So for a long time, I did I did blame my parents for a lot of things. Do you so. remember the first time you tried alcohol mm-hmm. or any kind of substance? Yep. So in sixth grade, um, we were still in West Valley. I decided smoking would be a really good idea. So I got a pack of cigarettes and smoked it all in my bedroom. And the little attention-seeking drama, I, I love that. I, I smoked like 15 of the cigarettes, went and woke my dad up and said, Dad, I want to quit. <laughs> like, come on. Like, there was I've been smoking for 20 minutes. I can't, I can't live this life anymore. I can't handle this. Anyway, so at the end of sixth grade, my parents decided that we were going to move to Bountiful and and to the top of the hill in Bountiful. Mm. So now all of a sudden, I'm coming from West Valley and West Valley kids, right? And I'm I'm moving to Bountiful. And it was a huge... Very so for the listener. That's a, those are very different communities here in Salt Lake. Just remember the premise for uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's a lot like that. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, yeah. you know, you go from kind of a, a, a Philly to Beverly Hills. Yeah, I mean, but in, in a sense, it's kind of what it felt like to you as a teen, maybe. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's exactly what it felt like. I was like, super excited that we had a big house. It was the worst house on the block, but it was still <laughs> a big house. And and everything was clean. But so I started going to school there in seventh grade, and I discovered very quickly that, um, you know, the kids, the kids were a lot different. And this kind of left me, since I wasn't part of the predominant religion, and it seemed to be a little worse up there. So this left me with either the rebelling ones or the, like, two that weren't. <laughs> And, you know, I wasn't really a kid into peer pressure. I wanted to do drugs. I wanted to try that because even by 12, what had happened is I could start. I felt a physical hole inside myself. And, you know, the anger defense mechanism, all what I wanted to be was the toughest person ever. And I'm not kidding. My goals turned into doing every drugs possible and ending up in prison by murder. That was my goal because I felt that that would just make this image of how tough I am and that you can't hurt me. And and so when I was 12, I, I smoked um, weed for the first time. Um, I also got drunk for the first time and put my hand through a window. Should have been indicative of what was to come. So, But I also had another major suicide attempt. So at 12, um, 13, and 12, 13, and 14 – I was in and out of psychiatric wards, and um, then my parents ultimately put me in treatment as a teen. Um, were there any other abuse situations in your life uh, after six years old? No, no, not not. No, just the anger, and mm-hmm. and how about? Can I ask about at, at what age you became kind of sexually active? Twelve. 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 Yeah, so that is a big part of my story as well. So, so that's what I did. I tried to fill this whole drugs, sex, and alcohol. You just you you're trying to feel feel anything. Mm-hmm. Well, probably also feel powerful. I think that's you know partly that's um, a bit of the challenge of being that age when we're transitioning from childhood to adolescence. We feel awkward and we feel different, and you're trying to build an identity that you're that you like and feels comfortable. 
and you were way behind the eight ball because of those all these experiences that you're talking about. And so instead of just trying to feel good about yourself, you were trying to repair, you know, this hole you felt inside. And and uh, most commonly, kids that age turn to outrageous things, things that'll make that are exciting or dangerous or powerful emotionally. Mm-hmm. And of course, sex and drugs and alcohol are are the big ones. That's the trifecta. I want to stop you real quick. Uh, when you said uh, that age twelve and thirteen, you were in and out of psychiatric. Uh, hospitals mm-hmm. what was the therapy model back then i mean what were the what were you diagnosed with what were they trying to help you with or was this just a place for you to supposedly control alt de- reset you know so well i had uh i had tried to kill myself um by taking a bottle of tylenol coating and and really what i wanted to do was my mom to hurt I wanted her to hurt. I wanted <laughs> I wanted her to miss me. So, you know, like when I really think of like how sick that is, I mean, I know it, but just to and, – and so they didn't really have a choice but to put me somewhere because I couldn't be safe on my own. And I don't remember the modality, what I've been diagnosed with as a teenager. Um, I know uh, bipolar disorder – um, and then pre-schizophrenia, because I wasn't 18 yet, mood stabilizers. I was on a lot of medication in and out of those places. Um, you know, and for me, I personally think I was a, a teenager with trauma and addiction. And, you know, so those medications for me at times made things a lot worse and, couldn't really be too effective anyway because I was still using drugs. So, um, as an adult, do you feel like any of those diagnoses are accurate about you? No. Yeah, and I, I was going to say that um, one of the difficult differential diagnostic challenges that we have with kids is when 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 a person has a complicated trauma history, especially if addiction has already become part of it, um, it can look like a lot of different things. And um, it, it's tough to diagnose and tough to treat. And uh, unfortunately, like your experience, uh, sometimes um, too often, you know, kids get these these heavy diagnostic labels and then the treatments that go along with them. And we're not really getting to the root of the problem. Um, one thing I think we could say about human beings, especially kids, but all human beings is, Life's all about having needs and trying to get our needs met. I mean, everything we do is in some form or fashion about meeting one of our needs. And a lot of those are very pro-social. It's not selfish. But as a kid, you need, you, you had a need of connection and attachment with parents that weren't able or willing or whatever to attach with you. And that is such a strong basic human need, especially at that age, that you'll go to lots of lengths, including like you were saying, uh, attempting suicide so that it would, my mom would miss me and she'd hurt and be sad and she'd miss me. And I actually don't see that as sick. I see that as a really unfortunate uh, side effect of a core need for a child not being met. You're listening to Project Recovery. We'll be right back with more of Tara's story. Welcome back to Project Recovery. Tara was just talking about how the need to feel loved and missed from your mom 
drove you to a suicidal attempt. Um, and then you, right before we broke, you said, this is when it gets crazy. What does that mean? So, I mean, I was really heavy into drugs and, and alcohol, alcohol. When you say heavy into drugs, so far you've just talked about marijuana, but you did say at the beginning of the podcast, your goal was to do them all. Right. Right. So when I was 13, I am, somebody had slipped me something and... I didn't know what it was, but I ended up on the bathroom floor, barely breathing. And my mom had taken me to the hospital and it turned out that it was heroin and was very fortunate that she'd gotten me there in time. Um, Heroin wasn't, I mean, that was one, the one time by accident. But other than that, like I spent, I spent, I mean, I was not choosy. It was whatever I could get. I really wanted alcohol is what I wanted. Um, Alcohol was my favorite. It made me feel it it just made everything okay, I guess is the best way to describe it. All that angst, all that everything. Sort of a numbing out and it makes you feel disconnected, right? But you know what? That's a sad statement because I can agree with it. Mm-hmm. Alcohol made everything okay. You're not hearing her say alcohol made everything awesome. You're not hearing her say alcohol made everything better. She was mm-hmm. just shooting for Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's that's how sad that statement is, and I'm not, I'm not sliding you because I felt the same way. I just wanted to feel okay. I wasn't asking for anything above and beyond that. I just, please make me feel okay. And so you said when you couldn't get alcohol, you were up for whatever was available. Whatever was available. Absolutely. And at this time, what your age, thirteen, fourteen, mm-hmm. you're sexually active, mm-hmm. uh, and you're up for whatever. Yep, and my education is down the drain. The last grade that I fully completed was sixth grade because I was in and out of psychiatric wards. Plus, you couldn't get me to stay in school. I went to school to meet with my friends to leave to get high, wherever that was and whatever that was. I was really big into acid. Um, and So by junior high school, you're doing acid? Mm-hmm. Wow. Smoking, LSD. Um, I hadn't tr- – no, no, I hadn't tried cocaine yet. Um, anything, anything I can get my hands on. Was that hard to find, uh, when you were a kid that age? Not in, no, not in the nineties. It's actually easier to get drugs than it was to get alcohol. Um, I I still think that's the case. Yeah. Well, I haven't been to a lot of drug dealers, but they normally don't ask you for an ID. Yeah, they, they probably <laughs> don't. True. They have loose rules. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, and and so by this time I was getting in trouble, uh, smoking tickets. I was getting kicked out of school. I was uh, getting in fights. I started the school on fire. I was expelled. Oh, pump eventually. the brakes! Pump the brakes! You started the school on fire. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, do what that. happened there? It just uh, we thought it'd be very funny to go and start the school garbage can on fire and drive back and watch. Uh-huh. I don't know. We got scared and took off, but yeah. it happened. It was a thing. So this is the kind of kid I was, right? Destruction, screw you. I'm going to fight you, and I'm going to let you know how tough I am. I think a lot of times when a person, especially a kid who has the judgment and foresight of a kid, feels chaos inside, mm-hmm. they sort of want to inflict chaos around them. And in an odd way, that can make a person feel a balance or even a little bit of calmness Mm -hmm. in inside. And so it's not uncommon for people to project that stuff, that chaotic feeling outward. Mm -hmm. So you're lighting garbage cans on fire. You're uh, out there partying. 
Uh, do you have a boyfriend at the time? Uh, do you have somebody? I mean, are you running with the same crew? Uh, at that time in junior high, it was the same same group of friends. And then, um, so what had happened is I had got made it through the system of school all the way to alternative school, totally different building, bust really far. But then I got kicked out of there too. And I, so this is when I'm 14. And, and at 14, I decide I'm grown up now and I don't need to live at home anymore. So I go and I move in with my friend and um, just told my parents nonchalantly, I'm, it's not working out for us. <laughs> you know, we need to have a talk, mom and dad. You're not really meeting my needs. Yeah. yeah. So so they said, OK. And I was like, huh. You know, but they had a plan and, and their plan was they, they had scooped me up and put me in a, in a long term treatment center, um, a 12 step program. Um, so I spent the next year there and you spent the next year at a long term residential, residential treatment. Residential teen okay. treatment center, 12 step program. So, so what happened is early on, it was drilled into my head that I'm an addict. All right. And and the steps were introduced to me. And I like to say that because the, the steps um, were always part of my addiction as well, which is an interesting twist for me. <laughs> um, so did you – so the, I just want to be clear. So so here you are, 14. You've decided to move out, but your parents agreed temporarily because they had this plan to send mm-hmm. you to an RTC, right? Mm-hmm. And while there – like, do, do you feel like, maybe even just in retrospect, looking back on it, do you feel like you were an addict yet at that point? Or was it kind of part of the treatment that made you feel like you were an addict? I feel like it was part of the treatment and the expectation. they treated you like you were already an mm-hmm. addict. Yeah. And so, and, and that was hard for me because I felt, I felt like, I really felt like I was the problem and that if if I could just be better than I was, my family would be okay, you know. And and then I would switch to, well, why don't they have to do anything, you know? Because <laughs> you think that, and so, but it, it was very drilled into me. You no, know, you're the problem. You're accountable. And and knowing what I know about um, treatment and and how you know addiction goes, I understand it now. But then it felt like get rid of Tara. She's the problem. And if Tara's not here, then our family will function a lot better. And because, you know, my family, my I was not nice to my siblings, you know, and before I could come home from this treatment center, my parents had me sign this. If I ever um, hurt my siblings again, that that I would I would not be able to live there at all. And had you had a lot of run ins mm-hmm, with your siblings mm-hmm, physical. Mm-hmm. I was very cruel. So um, so I understand why they did that. Um, at the end of that treatment center, they let me back into public school because I had um was doing so well, but then my parents are, but then I relapsed and then I tried to kill myself again at the end of this program. And they told my parents, they said, Tara, while you were still in the program, mm-hmm. you tried to, mm-hmm. you attempted suicide at the program. Mm-hmm. So this is your fourth attempt. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the reason why? I mean, cause it seemed like you were doing good. You were just getting ready to get let back in public school, move back in with your family mm-hmm. and no, I don't know. I, I don't. Well, don't you why. think that might have been part of it? <laughs> Maybe because I mean, if I understand what you're saying, you felt like uh, you've described the fact that you've had this this this. You called it a physical hole inside. You felt physically incomplete or or broken or damaged, which a person 
does when they've been abused, especially sexually abused. And uh, you also were parentified. You felt like I'm in charge. I'm supposed to take care of things. So the problem with that is you can't get away from that feeling inside. And here, here you go. They're saying you're fine. You can go back to And you knew what that life was like and you knew it wasn't better yet. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if a type of fear of having to go back and face that all over again might have made you feel hopeless and suicidal. So what happens after the fourth attempt? Um, so the treatment center tells my parents, you know what, Tara doesn't want to be sober. You're going to have to just let her go. And um, my mom told me that that was the hardest thing that she ever had to do. She said she fully expected a phone call that I was going to be found dead in a ditch. But that's that's what they did. So I got out. So I didn't have a lot of rules anyway growing up. Not a lot of boundaries, right? Um My parents didn't have consequences (laughs) for behavior. Um, So I I came out and and at first I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to, I'm going to really do this. It lasts about uh, two weeks. And you're 15 at the time. 15, just, just barely turned 15 and um, found cocaine and I loved cocaine. It, you know, it just... Absolutely. You know, and I didn't ever I never experienced a drug at that point that the instant you do it, you want instantly more. So but I was also very crafty because I really, 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 really wanted alcohol at the end of the day. And so I I got a boyfriend this 21 and, you know, all my needs were met. My um, alcohol, you know, I didn't have to pay for it. You know, at 15 now, I don't know that nothing in this world's free. So. I don't have to pay for it, but I am paying for it in sex, you know, and his dad would give me free cocaine. And of course, that's not free either. So his dad would take advantage and do things to me. And but, you know, in that world, I needed the drug and the alcohol more than I was willing to to do. anything. So you were being abused sexually, both by this adult son and his father. So as my life increases, uh, you know, time goes on at 15, I'm drinking almost a full bottle a day and my friends are begging him not to buy me alcohol anymore. But then I get, you know, that hole is still there and I get this great idea and this idea comes to me that I need a baby. And if I just have a baby, everything's going to be okay. And, you know, (laughs) that will fill this, this hole that I have. And so I set out to get pregnant, and I did get pregnant at 15. And, um, you know, the reality hit me right away after, like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe that I'm actually pregnant. You know, and then... Were you more... Is it because you couldn't drink or do drugs no, anymore? No. But- it really was the reality hit. You know, I want I want this baby to to make me feel... Like if I just had a baby to love me, you know, and I, and I know now what it looks like at 15. That's all I could think about. And if somebody's never going to leave me and always love me for me. And but then the reality of, of when I actually became pregnant is you're 15. I don't have any education. I haven't been I've been using drugs and alcohol since I've been 12. I've been in and out of psych wards. This is all I know. And I'm doing community service for shoplifting, sitting in this van, pregnant, doing, you know, side work, road cleanup. 
and and the the reality did hit me, but I could quickly push that aside and be like, no, it's going to be great. You know, this uh, imagination, not not understanding at all, um, the tornado that I'm about to blow through an innocent child's life. Um, and you know. That type of escapism into a fantasy world, into a grandiose, like you said, fantasy world, is a, a pretty common uh, technique or tool that a young person who's been abused, who feels alone, who feels hopeless and scared, you, you can escape into this world that you can make however you want it to be. And that becomes a tool of denial uh, and a defense mechanism to get away from things. But now you're stuck with a biological reminder that you, you can't. So was that sort of this in and out, in and out of that fantasy world? I have to deal with the reality, but I want to escape into the fantasy. Mm-hmm. And you're not even old enough to get a driver's license yet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, I was able to, I was, I was able to quit using, um, you know, my mom made a comment later in my life. She's like, I wish you could be pregnant all the time because you actually seem to be sane when you're pregnant. Right. Because I could do this. I could stay. I could stay sober. That's impressive. So you really were able to mm-hmm. stop drinking mm-hmm. and stop using yep. during your pregnancy. Did you get help from that or did you just. No, nope, I white just white knuckled it. it. Oh. And and so um, the father's this the 21 year old, you know, 22 now. And. And he had a drinking problem because <laughs> you know? we don't see our own problem, right? Like I quit. Like I'm okay now. I am good. And and he was he was a really heavy drinker, around the clock drinker, and it, it got really abusive at times, um, physically. Um, I I had my daughter when I was 16, and then I picked up drinking again just on the weekends because <laughs> the weekends are okay. But I had all these rules. And these rules would follow me throughout my addiction. I had all these rules on myself. I had my my child can't be at home. She has to be with my parents, you know, and I'm only gonna drink. I had no control once I started drinking, but I'm only gonna drink on the weekends. And so as the abuse continued with him, um and his drinking increased, um I actually I became pregnant again at seventeen. And you know, in my thinking is like is so so out there my thinking was like well you know what? i want my kids close together anyway not thinking now i'm 17 i can drive now <laughs> but you know my situation very 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 bad situation to have children in and so by the time and and so i i didn't use during my pregnancy with her and then again it started on the weekends and right before um i had her at 18 i had left I'd left that relationship. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to do the thing that we addicts can do really good. We can build up this great life because, you know, there's a lot of talents that addicts have. Oh, amazing talents. (laughs) Amazing talents. And I'm going to go to school. And and never mind that my last grade I finished was six. I went in and tested at college level. Don't know how that happened. Did it. Started school. And I was going to be a nurse. And I was going to make a difference. And, uh and so I was a single mom with two kids working graveyards and I met a, I met a man <laughs> and then it was like pot's okay. I can just smoke some pot and do this. Progressed very, very quickly. Um, moved in. Our relationship was very – that's where I really learned what sex and love addiction is and 
we were very, very addicted to each other. I know it's codependency now, but, you know, very, very much. And we just fueled each other. And so here my two little girls are um, at this point living in a complete party house. Um, well, a whole bunch of teenagers. I'm still a teenager. I'm barely 19, right, and drinking every single day. And I would start putting them to bed earlier and earlier and earlier to like 5 o'clock just so I can get loaded. And the situations got they, – they got really bad. And um, eventually I had – me and my partner would lock ourselves in our room all day long. And um, for sex addiction, you know, and doing the things that we were doing. And I came out of my room once. I would come out – of my room to feed and change my children and then I would go back in my room and you know use and and one time I came out and my uh, daughter who was only one and a half had gotten into the Ajax cleaning solution and eat part of it and spread it all over the house and you know it hit me absolutely so hard that and I, I am a completely neglectful mother and I'm not taking care of my kids So I called my parents and I asked them if they would come and take my kids. And if they wouldn't, I was going to call the state and I was going to give them my kids because I didn't know how to get out of what I was doing. And I didn't know how to take care of these two babies. Um, So that that became that that pivotal turning point for me. I no longer have any semi. I have to be responsible for the kids. I have to still go feed these, you know, beautiful children. No, it's just all hands on deck. So your parents came and took the kids Mm -hmm. and that just removed any sort of Mm -hmm. um, governor on your behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So it progressed. I couldn't pay rent very quickly to homelessness. And then I was on the streets. Were you still with this boy at the time? mm -hmm. So you and him were on the streets. And mm-hmm. um, were you? So you said it started with marijuana, but then progressed to addiction. So is this heroin, cocaine? It's once again whatever. No, um, meth. I I got and tried meth, but it it was it was anything, and I mean anything. Like um, we were snorting methadone, like anything, anything we could get our hands on, anything I could do. It did not matter what it was. I couldn't get it in me fast enough. Um. So then it starts out, you know, and then then we're just doing our our existence. And he's like, you know what? I think we should be swingers. This is going to be a great idea. <laughs> and um, and prostitution. And in my mind, you know, I'd already been doing this for free <laughs> since I've been 12. So I don't like men. I don't like women. I don't like anybody. You know, I don't like myself. I don't have any sense of self-worth, any sense of value. I just give my kids away, you know. So, um, and I followed him into this world of swinging, and I didn't want to do it. You know, it's hard to say that. Like, I was forced. I willingly, unwillingly did these things. And here I am, 19, having sex with 50, 60-year-old men. You know, and he would ask me, why do you have to get so drunk all the time? (laughs) It's like... I, I was like, that's I have to, I and I couldn't drink enough to get through the things that I was doing on a daily basis, and I could not drink enough to forget what I was doing. And so, 
you know, here comes the end. I'm desperate. I stopped seeing my kids because the guilt is just so bad. I can't even go visit them anymore. You know, because mom, when are, when are you going to come get us? <laughs> when when do we get to come home? So I stopped seeing them completely. And at this point, I'm 20. And I'm like, you know, I need to end it. And um, I get a gun. And I'm going to go up to the mountains where nobody can find me and have this whole plan because I have nothing to live for, um, nothing going for me. And uh, all of a sudden, this you're pregnant comes to me. And I was. I was pregnant again. And and I got angry. I was so angry at, at if there was a God, I was angry at God. I was like, how can you give me another kid? I I can't, I can't do this. But remember, my mom was absolutely right. For some whatever reason, pregnancy, I could get stuff together. And, you know, because it was important to me, I couldn't, I knew that I was making these choices for myself. I couldn't see, you know, I couldn't do that to another human being. And that was my, my logical reasoning. So uh, I found out that I was pregnant. And I, my sister-in-law at the time had said, you can stay in my house, in my basement. Um, your, her brother wasn't allowed to stay there. So my partner, um, and, but you have to come to these meetings with me twice a week. So I laid in that basement and I laid there. Um, I used one more time and it was Halloween. And, um, because at that point I wasn't sure that I was going to keep that pregnancy or not because I, I was realistically could see where I was at and I did not know that I could pull anything together enough to put anything together to have this child. And I had gone to my dealer's house and it was Halloween and he had a loaded gun and I put it in my mouth and took off the safety and put my finger on that trigger and it was right there. You know, it would have been so easy but I just had this still voice, it's going to be okay. And so, um, you know, that was the last time I used. Um, so I started going to uh, this predominant religions addiction recovery. I laid in that basement for three months with morning sickness, and I couldn't leave because I knew if I left I was going to use, I was going to use something, laying there sick and withdrawing off of multitudes of stuff. And, uh, you know, I built my life back together. Um, I, I'd gotten into um, an apartment and my kids were starting to transition back and I was maintaining sobriety. And um, I joined this religion. Um, and the day came where I found a meth pipe in my husband's coat, church coat pocket, my second husband. <laughs> and, and that was it. I was like, I'm not doing this again. I was I'm, going to church with you. Mm-hmm, and-, mm-hmm. and I was like, no, I can't. I was like, I'm done because I wasn't, I just got my kids back. We had some stability, you know, I was going to get a job, but I was also very pregnant. So I was waiting. So, uh, so we ended that relationship and, um, I maintained sobriety and, then um, I met my third husband. So, 
going along. I'm doing this church thing. I'm doing this. And, and you know, this is a real 180. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> no, like, it sounds like it. This is yeah. a real 180, right? That yeah. I, I, I can fit in very well in situations that I'm in. And it's like I meet this return missionary, knocks on my door, and I was like, I'm going to marry him. <laughs> complete insane. So – so I do. I do this complete 180, you know, like prostitute, like on the street, lose your kids to like a year later back. And now, you know, I'm in love again. And, you know, he finished serving his mission. He never went home. And, you know, then we did. So so he came and knocked on your door as a missionary. Yeah, well, he, I, he was it was, a missionary. actually, it was my neighbor. The missionaries were coming over to my house and he he was going to give, yeah, my neighbor discussions. So... Yeah, he knocked on the door, and that's how we yeah. met. And then he he fell in love with you, and you fell in love with him. Mm, well, yes. <laughs> and he he didn't go back to his home state. He stayed here. No, no, no. He's from Germany. He did not go back. He turned around, called me, and I picked him up from the airport. And in this time, I was in recovery, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm sober today. I I don't know what that looks like. You know, I can only promise today, and. The poor guy had no clue what it actually can look like. Um, so, so I'm doing this 180. I'm a, now I'm a stay-at-home wife. We bought, we have a house, a nice little red brick house. I have the car. I'm doing the church thing. I'm doing the soccer mom thing. Right, flipping just a few years. Not even. We have another baby. Now I'm 23. I have four kids. Living a complete opposite life of everything that I didn't know. But what I didn't know is how codependent that I am. And um, so I, I go back to college. I don't want to be a nurse anymore. Now I want to – so I started majoring in psychology. I want to be a therapist. I have four little kids and doing the whole thing. And, you know, the day comes that my husband and my father's opinion um, starts to – how do I explain this? It starts to really um, – where on me? Well, hold on. I should back up. So after my son was born when I was 23, the doctor gave me – so I've been sober now since 20, 23. The doctor gave me um, a prescription for fentramine, the weight loss pill. And and I didn't think twice about it. Started taking it. Loved it, right? And so It's I a get, stimulant. It is a stimulant. Yep. So um, I get off that, still in the back of my mind, and then – I was like, you know what? I can't get any more of that, so I can use ephedrine, Sudafed, nasal decongestant, right? Same thing. So I'm taking these pills. I'm not abusing them yet. Taking them. Working on still sobriety. I don't understand that I'm codependent, so my dependency is on people, places, and things. My dependency is on a man, right? This is my third marriage, and I'm 23. <laughs> so my dependency and my self-worth is wrapped up in my husband and my dad's opinion for whatever reason, right? And I'm doing doing these things. And so I systematically just start giving up all these things that, that were working for me to keep me sober, even though in my mind I was sober because I wasn't drinking. But I'm still taking this Sudafed. Sudafed increases um, about 30 a day. 30 30 30 with four rock stars and two five-hour energies because you know what it's not math you know what it's not going to happen to buy it at the grocery store gonna come take my kids so i'm very scared to lose my kids so then the day comes i was like you know what? i don't think i'm really an alcoholic 
I think I really have this thing under control. I think that I was a wild teenager and <laughs> and I can have a drink. And so I think it took about a month, a month till so I was 27 and it took about a month before I was back to one bottle a day, one bottle of vodka. And when I went back out drinking, it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't partying. It wasn't anything. I sat alone in my bathroom and I drank that bottle every day. And in 2020 or 2012, I had reached the point to a uh, physical dependence and I wanted, I wanted to stop drinking. So I went into detox. My blood pressure spiked to about 300, over 200 something. Um, they knocked me out and I woke up a few days later and, um, what it, I decided that, you know, I could do this on my own. I'm not going to go to any program. I don't, nothing works for me, but I got this. Lost like a week. <laughs> now, where's your husband in all this? Are you still with him? Yeah, we're still married. And was he, I mean, obviously at some point he became aware you were drinking. Was he drinking also? No, no. I mean, he was still, so for, for listeners who aren't aware, you you had joined the LDS church and one of the main tenets of that church is is the word of wisdom which teaches the members not to drink alcohol and so he's a return missionary very active member you were active at this point so you were drinking on the side in the bathroom mm-hmm. um he never got into that with you i guess no no he never did he was very very upset when he found out you know i would hide it he didn't know right away cuz it wasn't something that was in his reality um, and we had stopped going to church by this time. I guess. So okay, so, so you weren't active in the church, you know, we but he was still. I, I should have clarified upset that that you were drinking. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and and there were a lot of fights in the beginning about it. Um, and I had no ability to control my drinking, so it wasn't it wasn't ever that I can have like a one drink or two drinks and I'll cut off. No, it was always the bottle. And I was more or less a blackout drinker almost every day for a decade. And But they put you in a coma. You wake up two days later. You say you're going to do a white knuckle again because you've done it in the past. You said it lasted about a week. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? And then in my mind, <laughs> you know, I, I can control this. I can, I can just – I can drink normally. I can just drink socially. And, and, you know, you'd think the addict brain would come up with a different thing mm-hmm. to say, but that's what it always says. <laughs> yeah, oh, I got this. Always. I got this. I can yeah. control it. Yeah. So as I am descending deeper and deeper now, so my, my older girls had, had a mom that, that, um, you know, in that time I'd play, be playful, stay at home mom, cook, clean, right? 180 from what I was. And now all of a sudden, mom is crazy mom is what is mom doing she's yelling like i can never control it right there's no control of how i would act or what i would do is it and and, you know that's the tragedy for 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 the family members it's like eggshells all the time always eggshells which mom's going to show up today yeah am i coming home to mom who is going to be happy and playing with us or am i going to come home to her screaming yelling and you know and there were times that i would get physically abusive and, and definitely emotionally and, and psychologically, you know, there's just no stability for him. And so um, as my, my drinking's increasing, my family is falling apart. And, um, you know, my, my oldest daughter, um, she's shut down. 
She doesn't talk. You know, there, when she was 14, she'd just scream at us and bang her head against the wall, and we never listen. And so she's coming apart. My, my next daughter, she's in trouble with the police. She's doing all the same things that I was doing at 12. You know, she, we put her in treatment, and here I am. I'm still continuing in this, this cycle of alcoholism. And, uh, and then my 12-year-old um, attempts suicide. And um, we find him the next day, you know, having a seizure on the floor. And um, the only thing that saved his life is because he fell face first. And my family is just dying. And I don't see it. I don't see at all. And I would cry and be like, I don't know what the big deal is. I'm only hurting myself. You know, that delusion that absolute delusional thinking that we addicts are capable of is so extensive. And I couldn't see past my own pain. And I couldn't see past my emptiness. And I didn't know why they were making such a big deal of it. And um, and so, you know, we we were in family therapy on and off with my, my daughter and, and then my son. And, you know, my son had another suicide attempt. Um, uh, again, when he was 13 and again, same scenario, he just added more to it. He was in ICU both times. And I remember thinking, how am I going to get through ICU without alcohol? It's all about me. I can't even, I can't be there. I can't be that mom that, that, you know, why talk to me? What's going on? Because he can't talk to me. Because he's unsafe and he doesn't want he doesn't want to be a burden to me. Is that what he felt like? That's what he told me. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to make it worse. <laughs> you know, and here everybody in my home is in their own prison and a prison that I help create for everybody. Um so of course I was suicidal. On and off. Um, you know, I worked in treatment this entire time. I worked at a teen RTC. So you were like a teen counselor type mm-hmm. person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All through this. And in my thinking, my very twisted thinking was if I can't get this right, at least I can teach other people. And, you know, I had nothing to offer. Nothing. I had nothing to offer these kids. I thought I did. Absolutely. Um, but not in the state that I was in. And, you know, I – so we were in family therapy with my son and the therapist. We've been in multiple family therapy. And the therapist would bring up my drinking and I and I just knew – I knew at that point I was an alcoholic. But see, I had all these strict rules. I didn't drink before 3.15. I never drove. I'm a functional alcoholic. Functional you know, and how, you know how long an addict can write out that functional term? <laughs> There's no functioning here. This is just alcoholism. Well, it's part of that delusion yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. And so my suicide ideation is increasing. I live with it every single day. I had various plans of how I was going to kill myself. And, um, you know, the therapist would bring it up and I'd say, you know, I know I have a drinking problem. I'm not ready to quit because I knew that. I knew that I wasn't ready. I didn't know what I was waiting for. But I, I, I kind of knew that. I wasn't until that whatever that was, I wasn't going to be able to stop. And um, 
did your coworkers at the uh, treatment facility know? Could they tell that you were you were an addict? I started saying it. I started saying I'm a functional alcoholic to to your coworkers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I start. I would tell people that, like, and I don't know if it was like reaching out for help or like. Oh, she's just kidding. <laughs> just, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, but it probably was. I think it was probably a sign of how desperate you felt. So, wow. I mean, this is just. I mean, when you said this is when it gets crazy, I, I'm going to tend to agree with you. I mean, so far this has been quite the ordeal. Uh, multiple suicide attempts. Your family's, as you said, imprisoned by a, a jail that you have helped create yourself. You're working in a treatment center. Uh, are you still married at this time? Yep. We're still married today. You're still married <laughs> We're today? still married. So when does the reckoning come for you? So I'm sitting there and I'm on – I'm coming out of a blackout on my um, bathroom floor. So when I was 34, I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and due to my – addictions and um so i have all i come out of this blackout i have all of my blood pressure medication on the floor right because that was my plan and i knew it'd work and i don't know what was different that day than any other day but it that broken that really desperate broken part of me shattered into like a thousand pieces and I did the only thing that I could do. The only thing that I never had done is just help me. And and I was given that gift of desperation in that exact moment. I was so desperate, so desperate to never feel that way again. And the next day, um, I started calling treatment centers. Uh, I told my husband, I really need treatment. He's like, do what you want. Because <laughs> at this time, nobody's like Team Tara, because how can you be Team Tara when this has been Tara since she's been 12? You know, it's pretty hard to be on Team Tara. And um, I didn't know how to get into treatment um, because of You I, work at one? No. I, well, I'd walked out. I had walked out and quit oh. three months before. Oh, okay. But I was so, I didn't know how to get in. Um, I had quit. I held the insurance, so I had no idea. And everything was so expensive. Like, I, I couldn't do it. I finally found an IOP that was willing to take me. Intensive outpatient. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, that's usually a program that will allow you to have a job or it's during the day, but it's anywhere from three to four times a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, there's a th- run by a therapist. Uh, you usually get drug tested uh, just to hold you accountable. But I mean, it's, it's one step down from residential treatment. Mm-hmm. And you find one that's going to take you. So I find one that will take me. The guy asked me, do you need detox? I was like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Shaking like a leaf. And I didn't think I did, but I definitely did. So I'm, I'm, my blood pressure's rising. It's going quickly. And I'm in the liquor store parking lot. And I'm calling detoxes. And I'm crying. I was like, I don't want to drink. I don't know what to do. I need detox. And they're like, well, it's $1,000 a day. So I'm like, but I don't have a thousand dollars a day, so I, I did. I drank. That was my last time drinking, and that was my last drink was December eleventh. The next day, I found a very, very kind doctor that was willing to do out patient detox. Send you home with the pills and kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a program that my husband helped me take. Um, I went to the IOP every day. Um, the therapist I was seeing told me she's like. You have too much trauma for me. She's like, I'm going to need, I highly suggest you get a second therapist. So I did. I had two therapists. I, uh, 
I went to EMDR, you know, because I knew from working my time working in treatment and I knew even drinking there were going to be things that I had to face because I'd learned enough, right? And I knew that I was going to have to face my trauma and I knew that I was going to have to really put into it. I knew I was going to have to address it medically, psychologically, personal program, physically, emotionally, all, all of it. it. And and because I thought, what did I do last time? You know, what what did I leave out? And there was a lot of things I left out. So so I, I, I knew what I was going to have to do because of my experience, even as an active alcoholic working where I worked, I knew what I was going to have to face. You know, and the trauma therapy was really difficult and it was difficult because I had zero emotion attached to it. I could tell you it like it's my story and it's just what happened to me. Who doesn't that happen to? You know, like <laughs> that's that was my thinking. So I started to do these and it was it was so hard. But what I noticed was I got a Vivitrol injection. You know, I hit it every angle that I absolutely could. But what I started to notice is the insanity of my mind. And it wasn't just obsessing over alcohol and drinking and the cravings. I was obsessively obsessing about everything. Mm. I could never be mindful in the moment. I didn't know how. There's therapists would tell me that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think you know how this works. Four square breathing isn't working out for me. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I do now. Oh, I, I, do, I do now. But when I was that But caught, if you think yeah. about at those key developmental ages – being present was painful. Yeah. You know, being present when you were a kid in a home where you didn't feel loved and attached, being present during abuse, being present during, um, you know, crazy out of control behaviors, that, that being in the present moments, you trained your mind or the circumstances trained your mind to, to be elsewhere, to never be in the present. The present was a dangerous place for you to be growing up. Well, I think so much, in fact, when she was early at the young age of eight, she lived in her mind. It was a very grandiose right. world that she lived in. And it was right. the escape that that was that felt comfortable to you because you, Dr. And Matt's right. One of those, it's a, it's a tragic story that you're, you're so um, – telling us so well this tragic story but part of the tragedy and i'm sure you realize this at this point is these things weren't happening to an adult who had already built up neuropathways and healthy tools in their toolbox to deal with these things were happening to a child and an adolescent who never really had the opportunity to build those things because that's the trauma was happening at such a young age and pervasively and chronically for so long uh that i i it's the that would be the natural outcome that now you're in your 30s and you your mind can't do four square breathing mm-hmm. you can't be in the present but the great thing about recovery is it's possible and so you said your last drink was in a liquor store and you went home and you detoxed you went into an IOP. Mm-hmm. You got two therapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you learned the power of four square breathing. I did learn the power of it. <laughs> and so much in the fact that what does life look like for you today? Uh, it's absolutely amazing today. Um, so I did. I worked every day. I didn't, I didn't have a job for a year. Um, I focused for an entire year every day on recovery. I tried to hit all the elements like I would if I could have gone to treatment. That's <laughs> kind of what, how I treated it. Um, I did a lot of meetings. COVID was actually hitting at this time too. So when I was about 90 days sober, everything shut down. 
Mm. And so all the support that I had started, there's just no more. <laughs> so now what am I going to do, right? I'm trying to get sober here alone in my house where I just spent a decade drunk. So, but I found it. I found online communities and I found a, a lot of support. I worked, uh, I worked the 12 step program. Uh, I worked it every single day, freed myself from the past. Absolutely. I still work it every day. It's very important to me. Um, and then when I was a year sober, I, of course, went back to treatment working. <laughs> and as, as an employee. As an employee, yes. And so I work at a treatment center in Salt Lake, and I work at the IOP that I went to. In, Go ahead and tell us their names. Oh, I work at Odyssey House in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm amazing program it is a wonderful program it is absolutely and i also work at uh renaissance ranch outpatient and another wonderful program it is. we love the dixon family yeah and so i'm a peer support specialist there and i love it i absolutely love it i get to run groups based on what 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 i did to get sober and you know like m- my life is not perfect my there's a lot of damage that i did a lot. My my oldest daughter doesn't talk to me. I haven't I haven't talked to her in a in a long time. How old is she now? She's gonna turn twenty two here soon. You know, because throughout all my addiction, you know, I was so focused on not losing my kids to somebody else that I never stopped to realize that I was losing them in a completely different way. And you know, that was really hard when I came in. I just couldn't get over those external circumstances, like you know that victim mentality. Mm. And and I don't see it that way now. I, I know what I've done. I know. I'm accountable for it. And 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 I I have to be patient and I am patient, you know, and I have that hope that even if it's years from now, I have that hope that one day we can repair that relationship. But you know, I I she has to have her time to heal. You know, I caused a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And, you know, I can't take it back, but I can definitely show my kids that just because, you know, we might have um, a lot of trials in life and go way off the deep end sometimes, you know, we can come back and we can be strong. And, and my kids get my recovery, too. And, um, you know, I still my two kids are still in my home, my 14 year old and I'm a 17 year old. And, you know, they've they've changed a lot. And at the end of the day, nobody nobody else worked a program, right? Nobody changed. They didn't go to, you know. <laughs> but I changed, and I changed the way that I interacted with them, and it changed everything. Wow. Tell me how you stayed married. Oh. <laughs> oh, I tried. I tried to leave. I filed for divorce. That man was like... Nope. <laughs> you know, really held on to that in sickness and in health. <laughs> Till death to his part. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. he took well, well, German people tend to be very organized and methodical, and <laughs> they know how to make things work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he sounds like a pretty amazing guy to, to stick through with this. And your story is so amazing. And I remember when you sat down, which seems like an eternity ago, <laughs> to tell your story. You said you lived in this grandiose world, and that one day... You were going to save the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if your story is going to save the world, but it is going to save somebody. And for you being so willing to be open, authentic, and share every part about your addiction to your recovery, it's definitely going to help somebody out there. 
So I think you're doing wonderful things, and I think you're proof that recovery is possible. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but this is one of the craziest stories we've had on the podcast. But I love it because you are so honest and authentic, and you didn't hold anything back. And that's what our audience needs to hear, that sometimes it does get ugly. It gets scary, and there's a lot of people that get hurt. But what you didn't do is you didn't give up. And I think that's so powerful. I want to ask one more question. So do you feel like you, you, I think you said you feel like you can be present now. You Mm -hmm. can be focused in the moment. You can be mindful. What do you think kind of helped you turn that corner? Because as you're telling your story, I'm also thinking about the actual literal brain development that went awry during those years. And you've been able to retrain it and bring it back. What, what do you think helped you? become a person who can now be present and be accountable and take ownership of their situation? Um, well, I, I mean, I did <laughs> I did a lot of things. I really had to challenge. Um, I mean, I mean, realistically, I don't have brain damage. I'm not arguing that. <laughs> and, you know, emotional um, sobriety is the next frontier, right? What I'm definitely working on because I know that, that I still have times – that I fall into, let's say, a 15-year-old temper tantrum, right? My, my emotional immaturity is stunted. It's delayed. It's delayed, and I, but I also have hope that it will catch up. You know, maybe by the time I'm 40, I'll reach 30. You never know. <laughs> but, but really, it took a lot of challenging, challenging my thinking, right? Like, and even if looking at the insecures and everything, how it's so driven by fear. I was so driven by fear. I was so afraid of everything absolutely everything and I didn't even know it because it was a mask of anger all the time and and really accepting you know I think it's really important for a lot of us addicts is that that perfectionistic quality kicks in and it's not okay to be human and it's so important and so important to for me to learn I'm human and I'm gonna feel discomfort I'm gonna feel pain I'm gonna feel sorrow I'm gonna feel frustration and it's okay I don't have to run from it I don't have to avoid it I'm going to feel it and I'm going to not sit in it. <laughs> I'm going to feel it and let it go. But a lot of it is, is refraining my thoughts, you know, because that self-script was such, it was awful. I did not like one thing about myself, not one. I couldn't think of anything good, you know. And and so even if you take insecurities, plagued by insecurities, I would really challenge that self-compassion. You know, I had a therapist tell me once, you need to get a picture of that little eight-year-old Tara and say how much you love her. I was like, oh, you are kidding me. <laughs> Never going to happen because I couldn't ever have compassion for my eight-year-old self. I can have compassion for my 15-year-old self. A 15-year-old should know better. This is how I thought, right? And I look at my 15-year-olds when I've had them as like, oh, my gosh. you know. But it was really that – and I, I fact-check. I'm stupid was a huge one. How stupid? I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. And then I would start fact-checking it. Is that true, Tara? You're, you finished sixth grade. You know, you still – you got your GED. You didn't have to study for that. You – you got into college, you weren't behind. You know, I start fact-checking it. And it takes work. I'm absolutely not perfect at you're it. You're describing cognitive therapy. Mm-hmm. It's that retraining of, of how our brain thinks. Those negative automatic thoughts can be so ingrained. And we don't realize how much they affect um, how we think about everything, especially mm-hmm. ourselves. And so I think one of the most encouraging aspects of your story 
is from the neurological perspective that no matter how underdeveloped is the term I like, how, no matter how underdeveloped um, or damaged your your you know brain is and the emotions that come with it, uh, with hard work and and proper therapy, a person can retrain that. So I think when you hit forty, you might be forty. <laughs> I mean, if you work at it, it's going to happen. I think that's wonderful. And no matter how hard things are, no matter how far off track you've gotten, I think your story should help our listeners feel like you can get back to being an on track, developed, and healthy person. I think that's wonderful. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. And by the way, they say 40 is the new 30. Oh. <laughs> no, that's 50. I turned, oh. I turned 50 later this year. Oh, it's going to okay. be 50. Yeah. Hey, thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story, Tara. We really do uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And thank you for downloading this podcast every week uh, because you guys were able to do this and share the story of hope and that recovery is possible. It's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.